A president's party almost always loses seats in a midterm election. There have been like two exceptions in the last 80 years. Voter enthusiasm has increased among all voters to 77%, up 12 points from just before 2014's midterms. It is still very heavily dependent on at least two things for the Democrats, and I, just, I can't emphasize this enough. It's dependent on turnout among people who don't typically vote in midterms, and it's dependent on a few meaningful crossover voters coming from having voted for Donald Trump. Uh, the Kavanaugh fight galvanized conservatives and independents and also reminded the country that politics in the end is a team sport. When Americans vote on November 6th, Donald Trump will not be on the ballot, but his presidency will be. Control of Congress is at stake, and for many reasons, this midterm election could be one of the most consequential votes in a generation. Polls are notoriously fickle, and the huge volume of polling data has given both major parties reason for optimism. Issues like corruption and a polarizing Supreme Court nomination have lit a charge under Democrats. But with Trump presiding over a strong economy and chalking up victories on trade, Republican voters have their own win column to point to as well. Few Washington insiders have followed the twists and turns of the Trump presidency more closely than my guest today. Elizabeth Drew is a veteran Washington reporter and a chronicler of the U.S. presidency since the Nixon era. With historical perspective and a sharp pen, she paints an unflattering picture of the Trump administration. And yet, she concedes that Election Day 2018 may bring more questions than answers for Trump and the Republicans, and even more political gridlock for America. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today on this edition of PS Editor's Podcast. It's nice to be with you. Well, it's wonderful for you uh, to be here. Wonderful to have you and lots, lots to cover before uh, what may shape up to be quite a historic uh, midterm election. So we'll get right to the conversation. Now, this is this is not simply an election uh, about who controls Congress or state capitals. There's much more at stake. Donald Trump is not on the ballot, but many of his ideas and policies and, and positions, I assume, will be and that American voters will have that front of mind when they go to the ballot box on the 6th? I think two things are going on. Uh, The president has put himself, in effect, on the ballot. He's tried to make the midterms about himself, and that is because he has a very, very strong grip on what's called his base. We can explain that later. And he wants to be sure to get the Republicans out. The Democrats have been worked up uh, really since the day after the election in 2016, but various things he's done has gotten them all the more excited. And they say that midterms are very much about intensity, which party feels more strongly and and will turn up more. We have a pretty dismal voting record on midterms. We're not too great on presidential either, but it's even worse on midterms. So the president has been out there trying to uh, get Republicans uh, more uh, excited about the election. I think he has done so, events have done so, our huge fight over the Supreme Court Justice, the new Supreme Court Justice, Mr. Kavanaugh, uh, got both sides worked up uh, all the more. So it's not it's affected Republicans, it's also intensified the Democrats. I don't know if that evens out. Right, right. I want to stick with Trump's base uh, and supporters for one second. I mean, his approval rating since taking office hasn't really moved. I mean, it, it is and somewhat remains right around 40 percent, I think. 
Anywhere from about 30, it's been low 33 and up to 41 or 42, okay. but it's, it's in that range. It's, in that it's never range. been a majority, never been a majority. Right, I mean, it's it's low, but given all of these, you know, these growing scandals, persistent questions, and you've written about his mental health and his isolation in the world, one has to wonder how he retains as much support as he does, even if it's low. I mean, could he really shoot a man on Fifth Avenue, as he said, and not lose support? Well, one wonders. They do stick with him. Uh, well, there are those of us who observe, uh, who do worry about his, have observed various uh, phenomena that raise questions about his mental health, and doctors I have talked to, you know, raise these questions. But um, the people who are behind him, who support him, they support him because he rec- he represents uh, change. He represents um, they think he represents, you know, he's fighting for them. Now, actually, programmatically, he hasn't done uh, his followers, which you might call lower middle class um, uh, workers. Uh, he hasn't really done them much good. We have a strong economy, but the rate wages aren't really rising. Mm. Uh, the tax bill is demonstrably geared to the wealthy, but uh, they don't like the Democrats. And ever since he, you know, he's still running against Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans are very good at uh, at negative campaigning. I'm not saying that, you know, the Democrats are, you know, purely idealistic, not for a minute. But he's managed to solidify this support on his side that's pretty unshakable. Um, he had more independence when he when he won than he does now. They have They have gone off of him. And you keep hearing, well, the base is beginning to erode. Now, I I covered uh, Richard Nixon and his, uh, you know, Watergate and his decline and near impeachment. I mean, he was run out of run out of his office. He had a base when he began when this all began too, but he didn't have Fox News. We didn't have they didn't the right didn't have the systematic kind of support that uh, that Trump does now. Mm, right. You know, sticking with the Nixon comparative for a second, you've pushed back, I think, against the comparison on some points. And on one of them is, is the one that you just made, that it's kind of this very different political dynamic in Washington today than it was uh, four decades ago. And I think uh, last year you told an interviewer that, quote, partisanship was not the oddity, it was really the norm. What's changed? And how would you compare the GOP of Nixon uh, versus the GOP of today. Uh, to be quite uh, simple about it, there are hardly any moderate Republicans left, and there was quite a, quite a large number of them in the in the Nixon period. So you don't really have. You may have two or three or four uh, Republican moderates. I'd have trouble coming up with that many in the Senate. They're gone, so it's much more partisan now. It's much more divided. And that's probably the biggest difference. In the Nixon period, it'd be the impeachment proceedings against him began in the House Judiciary Committee. The House was uh, dominated by the Democrats at the time, but they couldn't have pulled this off. They could not have pulled off an, an, a near impeachment. I mean, he would have been impeached in the House and convicted in the Senate. The impeach is like an indictment, and in the, uh, the Senate, they, they're like the jury, they do the convicting. So he would have been indicted and convicted had he not left office. And, and that, that was why they understood it, and it was brought home to him. But 
it wouldn't have gone down the way it did, and it would not have been largely accepted by the country had it not been essentially bipartisan. Now, not, not all Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee supported impeaching him, but a good number, seven or eight of them did. And that was very important. And so did some, in those days, we had much more Southern, many more Southern Democrats. They hadn't all switched over yet. So it was, it was bipartisan in a way that if this came up against uh, Trump this time, it's very hard to see how that could be pulled off in the same way. Another big difference is uh, Trump is fighting his, his investigation very, very hard. Right, and right. he has allies, particularly in the House, who are out to destroy it. And we don't know what will happen after the midterms, but it's, it's rather assumed that uh, unless he just gets his, you know, the Republicans get their, get, have big losses. They, they're probably going to lose the House. We'll get to that later. Mm. But unless they have big losses, um, Trump is going to take some pretty strong actions after the midterms. We don't know exactly what they are, but we expect him. He expect him to try further to, you know, end the end the investigation. But the point is, he's fighting it much harder than Nixon fought his investigation. Nixon believed in the system um, and the legal system, and Trump does not. Mm, right. So they have very different attitudes. And so what Trump and his allies on the Hill have been doing in the House mainly is trying to. Uh, bloody Mr. Mueller, the, the general, the chief counsel, the chief investigator, and to discredit whatever he comes up with. So we have a different, we have a different atmosphere that they let happen at the time, or, you know, Trump is working on very hard to sort of muddy it. And he keeps saying it's a partisan group, there are Democrats there. And so he's trying to discredit whatever would come out. You know, I mean, the difference between the era, the Nixon era and the Trump era, you know, these are bigger questions about the makeup of, you know, conservative uh, members of Congress or more moderate members of Congress. These are reflections of, of, of society, really. You know, I wonder just in the last couple of decades or the last few decades that you've been following uh, the evolution of politics in Washington, what's allowed something like Trump to, to, to emerge? I mean, is it the speed of the news cycle? Is it the disbelief uh, of, of, of fact? You know, it's, it's hard to be an observer and really get our handle on it. Well, you're raising a very, very big question is what, what let Trump happen. You know, a lot of these things, we want, we'll read into great big movements and big philosophical things. A lot of it's very circumstantial. The nature of the opposition, Trump didn't have very, very strong opponents, it turns out. Uh, and he had a lot of them. And that, uh, that splits the opposition. Uh, in the general election, uh, Mrs. Clinton ran a really bad campaign. Uh, she had no theme. Uh, she didn't go into certain states. Uh, it was just—it was really not a good campaign. And it, it may be that Hillary is one of these people, and they're all over the place, who really very committed to governing and governance and competence and all that, but they don't necessarily make good candidates. And she's never really been a great candidate. Where her husband was a you know fantastic candidate, but he was a natural Paul. She is not a natural Paul. So, and, you know, we'll, we could spend forever, we still do, on how much was Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, how much was she hurt by 
uh, James Comey, the FBI director, reopening the investigation of her server, on which there was a really big overreaction to the fact that she kept her own server, uh, you know, email server at home, and how much the Russian interference helped Trump. I think in both cases, they both hurt Mrs. Clinton, but if she'd run a great campaign, she wouldn't have been as vulnerable to them. So it's, you know, the picture isn't, isn't so clear um, that he triumphed over all of them. So I don't know that you can draw global conclusions from a situation like that. I kind of resist that because there are so many circumstantial points, you know, things that happen that can make, make made a difference. At a moment when it seems that our democracy is more defined by our discord and our dysfunction than by our own values and principles, uh, let me begin by noting a somewhat obvious point that these offices that we hold are not ours indefinitely. We're not here simply to mark time. Sustained incumbency is certainly not the point of seeking office, and there are times when we must risk our careers in favor of our principles. Now is such a time. I've decided that I would be better able to represent the people of Arizona and to better serve my country and my conscience by freeing myself of the political consideration that consumed far too much bandwidth and would cause me to compromise far too many principles. To that end, I am announcing today that my service in the Senate will conclude at the end of my term in early January 2019. We've had a number of uh, congressional incumbents walk away from politics in, in the run-up to this election. Um, you know, one who was in the news uh, quite often during the Kavanaugh hearing, Arizona Republican Senator Jeff Flake, who said, uh, who specifically cited political polarization in Congress as his reason for not running. No, well, he may have cited that, but his reason for not running, and he's admitted this, he, there was no way he could get the Republican nomination. Mm. The very important phenomenon now is Trump's hold on the Republican Party. He's, kind of, he's really taken it over, even though he was probably a Democrat most of his life. But he's taken it over. He has a, you know, something in the 90s percent support within the party. So when you get to, the, to, be, to be elected, first they have to win a primary contest within the party. And Flake just, you know, took a look at the atmosphere and probably had some polling, and he felt that there was no way he could get the nomination uh, in Arizona to to run again. Now, the odd thing is that in the general election coming up, uh, there's a chance that the Democrat running for his seat will win it over the Republican running for his seat. But that doesn't have to do with uh, he had committed uh, – Flake had committed apostasies as regards to Trump, and there was just no way he could get the nomination. That it'd be, he could say a number of other things. A lot of people, you know, some people, you're right. Some people have quit because it's, it's really not a lot of fun to be in a Congress that's this divided, and, you know, they really can't get things done. So some of them just sort of give it up on that. But there, you don't really have to look at it seat by seat and see why. This person is checking out, but we're losing some talented people, and it's it's not good. But 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 an overwhelming number of those talented people are Republicans, which gives Trump an opportunity. Um, that's what and, I mean. And yes, it sounds like you're saying I mean. that, that he's not going to miss that opportunity. No, no, uh, he's going to try, but 
in some of these open seats, it's, it's really neck and neck as to who's going to win. But what's different now, as I say, is, is Trump's hold on the Republican Party. Now, you know, I think you mentioned before, but I'll ask you now, why the Democrats, and maybe you've just answered it, but why the Democrats have so far failed to really consolidate and, and, and benefit from a lot of these things that we've discussed today? Well, uh, a lot of it, again, is, is situational. I know it, it makes me less uh, philosophical and, and sweeping in my judgments and all that, but just, you just have to look at the math of which seats are up this time. And overwhelmingly, it's Democrats, uh, more Democratic seats are being challenged, are up for re-election this time, than Republicans, almost, I think almost twice as many. And a number of these are in fairly conservative states. Take Ms. Heitkamp, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota. That's a very conservative state. She's a Democrat who won very narrowly the last time, and nobody expected her to, and she, and she, she did win. Now, she voted against Kavanaugh, which was very brave of her, went against, you know, went against the grain of, or certainly of her state, but she, I believe her, she, she felt it was the right thing to do. So she's struggling now to win re-election. But I don't know that uh, if some of these people don't win re-election, it's sort of how it was supposed to be before, uh, before Kavanaugh and before there was this bubble that said, oh my goodness, the Democrats might take over the Senate. The odds were never, were always against the Democrats taking over the Senate because of just the, the sheer math of which seats are, are open this time. So it's more math and not a, an inability to unify around a, a message or, or a policy. No, I think that's right. And I think this whole business, I mean, you're, you're right to bring it up because a lot of people in the press keep going on about the Democrats have no unified message. They rarely do. Uh, things are different in the different states. And it's very hard for any party to have a message without a clear leader of the party. And now the Democrats at this time do not have a clear leader. And that's not surprising. They don't, you know, they don't have a president. We don't know who the nominee will be. That's a whole other story. It is way off uh, as these things go. So... You know, it's not surprising. They they tried and tried and tried to come up with a unifying theme, and they always fell flat because it didn't work for everybody, or they had to so um, massage it and make it uh, uh, bland that it just came off as you know just as not an organizing principle at all. But uh, they, I'm sure, through polling and this and that, they have found that it, you know when you get down to it. A lot of people care more about health care than anything else. And the Republicans tried to kill it. First, they tried to kill it, which they couldn't do. And now they're threatening a very important part of it, which is whether if you've had a disease in the past, can you still get insurance? It's right. called pre-existing conditions. Right. Now, it, it's, it's so potent, and Republic Democrats are stressing these in their individual races. And it's gotten so bad that now Trump is, uh, well, frankly, he's lying. He put out a, uh, he put, wrote something in USA Today about how strongly he was for health care and for all these things. And USA Today got, took a lot of criticism for just running this thing. It was full of things that just weren't true, that they finally had to put in, they had to run something else correcting what he said. So from that you can draw, the Republicans are on the defensive on health care. And when it comes down to it, these are the kinds of issues people vote on. 
But you have to remember, like in, in 2014, our last uh, our last midterm election, uh, people, Democrats were running away from Barack Obama at the time. I was trying to remember yesterday what that was about, because in the end, he, you know, he ended up being a very popular president, a very popular ex-president. But at the time, he hadn't been getting all done. There were various things that had happened. So people had also run away from from the leader. A number of Republicans, I, I should have mentioned this, they don't want Trump to come in and campaign for them because, they, you know, he's very, very controversial. Uh, we we say he's got a 40 percent. Well, 40 percent is, isn't, isn't a majority. So a number of Republicans have said, thank you very much. We would just assume he'd not come. Hmm. Sometimes he does anyway. Uh, so not everybody is is uh, rallying. Not every Republican is rallying around right. him at this right. time. Well, that's a, and that's a good point. I mean, you know, the the incumbent party can still survive a trouncing at the presidential level. Bill Clinton did it in 1994, um, and yet he still came back um, and won re-election. So what happens in a few weeks um, might not have that much bearing on Trump's future. But it brings us to what I think is the best way to end a long conversation about all of these issues with your predictions. Um, who controls the House hmm. and Senate for the next two years? Well, um, I'm not big on I'm not big on predicting, but I felt you might not be, but I had I mean, to ask the question nonetheless. <laughs> that's fair enough. It looks to it very much looks like the Democrats will take over the House. The uh, Republicans they're trying to limit the number of seats they could win, and still hoping that maybe they can win the House by one vote. And I tell you, this is this is what terrifies the president. I mean, and I'll say, well, you know. I mean, internally they're saying, well, we don't think we can win it, and they're not putting a lot of resources into it. But uh, Trump faces a long set list of investigations if the Democrats take over the House. He may face an impeachment inquiry. Uh, frankly, they're, you know, I, I, I wrote about Nixon's impeachment, and I wrote a book about it, as near impeachment. And from that and from watching the Judiciary Committee at the time, I can conclude that there are five or six impeachable offenses that uh, Trump has probably committed. Uh, But it's not clear. The Democrats are very split right now over whether they want to proceed, and they don't want it to be talked about uh, in the midterm. So they're sort of stifling people from saying, well, if we win, we get to impeach him, because that will stir up the Republicans, if you follow me. In the Senate, uh, it's not likely, but it never was likely, that the Democrats could take it over simply because of what I mentioned before, the math, the the seats that are up in what kinds of states. There are a number of uh, Democrats up in states that Trump carried by quite a lot. I think he carried North Dakota, I don't know, by 20, 30 points, something like that. So you've got uh, Ms. Heitkamp, a Democrat, up for re-election. And it's tough, but uh, uh, Texas—that's the one you know. A lot of people are watching because the incumbent, Mr. Ted Cruz, is not a very popular, not a very, frankly, not a very likable figure. And uh, he's not liked. It. He's got maybe one friend in the Senate. Uh, but uh, there's a very attractive, sort of exciting Democrat named Beto O'Rourke running against him, and he's giving him a good run for it. But if O'Rourke were to win, it's almost a miracle because Texas is still highly Republican state. It's not there yet. It's changing. There are more Hispanics, more people of color, but it's not there yet. So if you just look at the at that math, 
it would be kind of amazing if O'Rourke wins. But it's not. I don't think it's out of the question. Hmm. Hmm. People say, well, it's Texas. He can't win. I, I think it's, it's possible. Hmm. And there's just a number of – there's some Democrats who are running who, who are vulnerable, uh, Mr. Nelson of Florida, Ms. McCaskill of Missouri – so it, anybody would be foolish to say now how they think the Senate is going to come down. Hmm. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. If the prediction holds, though, that the House flips and the, and the Senate stays, then the right. next couple of years we might not get a lot of policy done, but President Trump might retain his, his post, um, I suppose we could say. Be... He'll retain his post, but he's going to be facing, not he himself, but his administration, he himself, there are going to be a ton of investigations. And there's a lot to investigate. What's happened as a result of his uh, of the Republicans dominating everything? They've got both. They've got the House. They have the Senate. In effect, they have the Supreme Court, which they are going to continue to have. Uh, and that shouldn't count politically, but the reality is it's there. Um, so the point is, there's been no accountability for uh, the Trump administration. And nothing about you know potential sca- other mm. potential scandals in the various agencies. Uh, some of the Democrats want to re-raise the uh, go up, go back and look at Kavanaugh because they feel that there was a lot of uh, money, funny business that went on for for his nomination. I don't know. I don't think that's the greatest idea, but they're not asking me. Uh, and there, there's going to be a lot of investigation. It will not be pleasant. And you're quite right. Uh, we shouldn't expect a lot to get done, but a lot doesn't get done now, even though they have co- they have complete control of, of the Congress. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine a recipe for even worse gridlock, but it almost sounds like that's where we are uh, in I, our I, conversation. That I can guarantee you, if the Democrats take the House, there will be even more gridlock than there is now. Wow. Well, be careful what we ask for, America. Um, I, I think we can end it there. I think that was a, a extremely uh, enlightening and good primer on what to expect November 6th and why it all matters. So thank you very much for your time today, Elizabeth. It was great to talk to you. I enjoyed it very much. Call again. That was Elizabeth Drew, a contributing editor at The New Republic and the author of Washington Journal, reporting Watergate and Richard Nixon's downfall. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.